Hello and welcome to the Cross the Crown podcast, episode 62. I'm Doug Gooden. Thanks for listening. Today, we conclude the series, Ruining Your Favorite Bible Verses. And which verse am I going to ruin for you today? You'll just have to listen to the whole episode and find out. Also, we're going to talk about the most important aspect of learning that is largely ignored by men today. And finally, we're going to talk about knocking some sense into young women. So grab your Bible and a cup of coffee, and let's get to work. It's time to put on the mind of Christ. Well, hey, friends, welcome to episode 62 of the podcast. Uh, today, we're going to wrap up our brief series that I've called Ruining Your Favorite Bible Verses. I hope that uh, along the way, you have learned the value of reading things in context and uh, not just grabbing a verse here and there. Today, I'm going to pull out one more verse that we love to uh, to quote in certain contexts, and uh, I'm going to show you that that's not the context in which the verse originally occurs. Before we do that, though, I wanted to just take a, a proud father moment. Uh, if you've been listening for a while, you may recall early, I don't know, I forget when it was, maybe in November, my son released his first music uh, song and, and uh, video. It was called I Know Who I Am. Well, last week, we, we released his second song. It's called You Today. His name is Gabe Gooden. He's 15 years old. Uh, it's, a, it's a lovely song, kind of has uh, echoes of some 70s uh, in, uh, arrangement in it. Anyway, uh, it makes his mom cry every time she hears it. So uh, give that a listen if you would. We'd love it if you'd make comments and refer others to it. Anyway, it's called You Today by Gabe Gooden. You can find it on all the major platforms and on YouTube and such. So that's uh, that's my boy, and I just wanted to uh, to share that with you. Thought you might be edified, and maybe he'll get a few more listens. That'd be nice. All right, so back to our uh, topic at hand. 2 Corinthians 6.14 is a verse that, uh, that we've probably all spoken of and used in a context in which uh, it doesn't belong. It is the verse that, depending on how you memorize it, says something like, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers or do not bind yourself with unbelievers. And almost every time I've heard anybody use it, it's been in the context of dating and marriage. Christians are not to date non-Christians. We are not to marry non-Christians. And I get it. I have three children. I've got two daughters and my son, Gabe, that I just referred to. And I do not want them to date or marry unbelievers. I believe that I can uh, convince them from Scripture that they shouldn't. And at the end of the day, I would include this verse in that arsenal, trying to show them that the Lord uh, would not be pleased and it would be unwise and so on. However, 2 Corinthians 6 has nothing to do with marriage. That is not the context. And here's a bonus verse to ruin. In fact, I'm going to ruin an entire chapter for you. 1 Corinthians 13, the so-called love chapter the chapter that I had read at my wedding, and you probably had read at your wedding if you're married, it has absolutely nothing to do with marriage itself. The context of 1 Corinthians 13 
is chapter 12 and chapter 14. And those chapters are all about spiritual gifts. And it doesn't matter what gifts you have given by the Holy Spirit, if you don't use them out of love, if you are arrogant and prideful in your manifestation of those gifts, then you have missed the point. It's not about marriage. Now, it's a beautiful chapter. Is there anything wrong with reading it at a wedding? No. But most people don't realize what Paul is stressing there. In fact, what's ironic is the most recent thing that Paul has said about marriage in the book of 1 Corinthians is, don't get married. And here we use chapter 13 in our, in our wedding ceremonies all the time. Well, 2 Corinthians 6 is also not about marriage. Well, what is it about? This is where you have to get the larger context. Going back to chapter 3, Paul there spends a great deal of time defending his own calling as an apostle and explaining the superiority of the new covenant over the old covenant and why he and the other apostles were called as ministers of the the new covenant. And he's fighting in Corinth the same thing that he fought in most churches, and that was the influence of the Judaizers. Wherever Paul went, the Jews followed him, and they were seeking to convert Christians to Judaism. We see this all over the place. Of course, Galatians, that's the entire uh, purpose of the letter to the Galatians. But we see it in every book. In Ephesians, there's long explanations of what Christ has accomplished to bring Jews and Gentiles together in one new man, uh, not simply uh, continuing on the, the, the Jewish religion and not doing something entirely new. Uh, apart from that, Romans has a lot of uh, a lot of words spent explaining how a Christian should think of Judaism because there was a Jewish influence there. Acts fifteen, of course, the first great council, the whole question of do Christians, do Gentiles who come to Christ need to be Jews and keep the law? On and on and on. Every letter he has to deal with this, and the same is true at the Church of Corinth because Judaizers would follow him and try to. Uh, bring Christians back to the law of Moses and so on. So chapter three, Paul uh, explains in very stark terms, the old covenant was a covenant of life and a covenant of the spirit and a covenant of righteousness. And the old covenant, he says, was a ministry of death, a ministry of condemnation, It was external, written on stone tablets as opposed to written on the human heart. And he says, even in his own day, whenever and wherever Moses is read, whenever the Old Testament, especially the law of Moses is read, there is a veil placed over the hearts of the hearers. And that veil is removed when someone turns from the law to Jesus, to Christ, to the gospel. And in chapter four, he talks about how uh, that, that gospel has been shown in our hearts in, in a way similar to the way that God spoke the, the first light into existence when he said, let there be light. He also will take his gospel and shine it into our hearts. Then he goes on into the section of uh, how we have this treasure in earthen vessels, this treasure of the gospel, the true message of Jesus. We have it in these, in these clay 
bodies is kind of the point, that our bodies can be broken down. And, and for Paul, everywhere he went, his body was beaten and stoned and flogged, and, and he was treated harshly, mostly by Jews. See how he's continuing the context there? But he says, hey, we don't give up. We don't lose heart. We press on because even though uh, they can beat our bodies, the Jews can, uh, the gospel and this treasure continues on. And someday we're going to be free of this, uh, of this painful body uh, and, and be in a place where there's glory and joy entirely. And, and that's where he makes the famous statement that, uh, you know, there's an eternal weight of glory, as C.S. Lewis uh, called it, that it's far beyond all comparison to any suffering we might have here. In chapter 5, he gets into uh, that more detail that we long to be absent from the flesh and to be with the Lord. And he's not, he's not building a, a Gnostic uh, theology here where we look at our bodies as a prison that we need to be freed from, but he's admitting that we, our current bodies are, are damageable and they hurt and they're pain, they experience pain and sorrow, and we long to be free of that to be with the Lord, then, of course, eventually we will be given new bodies, and uh, that body will not be perishable, and it will not, um, it, it'll not experience pain and sorrow. And, and that he covered in great detail in 1 Corinthians 15. Then toward the end of chapter 5, he makes this statement, uh, "'Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh.'" Catch that? No one according to the flesh. What is he talking about? Well, the whole context is we don't look at Jews as Jews and Gentiles as Gentiles. That's not how we divide the world anymore. If we're going to make any division, it's Christian and non-Christian. It's those in Christ and those outside of Christ. But we're no longer concerned about heritage about uh, lineage, genealogy, being able to trace your family tree back to Abraham, that's irrelevant now. Now that Jesus has come, uh, all that matters is having your faith tree traced back to Abraham, having the same faith as Abraham. We don't recognize flesh, which would have uh, overtones of circumcision included because the Jews love to make a big show of the flesh, as Paul talks about in Galatians, uh, and, and and take the flesh, circumcise people to make them Jews. Paul says here, we don't do any of that. That's not how we know people, not according to the flesh. And then he makes this profound statement. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet we know him this way no longer. Even Jesus, even the Messiah, Paul says, we do not consider him as a Jew. We don't think of his flesh. We don't think of his circumcision. We don't think of his genealogy. That's not what is preeminent. Christ, the Messiah, is for all people everywhere. That's why he goes on and says, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things have passed away. New things have come. That's not just a verse about regeneration. In fact, that's not even the primary point here, but he's quoting from Isaiah or alluding to Isaiah when God says, behold, I'm going to do something new. The old things are going to pass away is the old Jewish system. I'm going to do something new. I'm going to make a new creature. This is the new man, Jew and Gentile together as the one new man, as Ephesians 2 talks about. 
Now, all things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That's uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 18. 19 says, Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. See, it's the world, not just the Jews, not just Israel, but all peoples, all nations, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed us to the word of reconciliation. He says, we apostles were given this task of calling the world to be reconciled to God. So Jew, Gentile, everyone be reconciled to God. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. And here's the appeal. Here's the message that Paul preached to everyone, Corinth, Rome, Judea, Jerusalem, everywhere. Here's the the appeal. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's the appeal. Then chapter 6 goes on, continues the context. And working together with him, we also urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain, for he says, and here he quotes the Old Testament, at the acceptable time, I listened to you, and on the day of salvation, I helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Again, this is part of the calling the world to be reconciled to God. Now is that time that the Old Testament was talking about. giving no cause for offense in anything, so the ministry will not be discredited. And he goes on uh, to talk about his hardships and suffering, going back to the theme earlier. Verse 11 says, Our mouth has spoken freely to you, O Corinthians. Our heart is opened wide. You are not constrained by us, but you are restrained in your own affections. Uh, he's, he's now appealing to the relationship that he has with these Corinthians. He spent a lot of time there. He's gone through some great pain with, um, with apparently there was one man in particular who was causing great distress to Paul and the apostles. And, uh, and, and Paul begs them to take action to call this man out and cause him to stop with his divisions and factions. And then he apparently, uh, they did, and he repented. And that's the man that earlier in 2 Corinthians, Paul says, uh, so receive him, forgive him. I forgive him. You need to forgive him and move on. Uh, That earlier account in chapter two is not referring back to the man uh, living or sleeping with his mother, his father's wife from First Corinthians. That's not the point. This is a different guy entirely. So now Paul is appealing here to uh, to the affections, to the relationship that he has with these Corinthians. See, these false teachers have caused the Corinthians to speak against Paul, and he's explaining himself. He's explaining his call to ministry and what his purpose is. And now he's saying, uh, "Look, we're not restraining you. You're restrained by your own affections. You're being driven by your emotions, and you're listening to these other guys. Stop it. Uh, know the truth. Remember who we are. Remember our relationship and all that." Verse thirteen says, "Now in like exchange, I speak to you as children. Open wide to us also." He's begging them to be reconciled to him, not the, through the gospel, but but to remember the gospel he's already preached to them, and he's begging them to recall the relationship they had. And then he gives the verse 14, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. In the context of all of this, the unbelievers there are the Jews, the Judaizers who are pretending, some of them at least, pretending to be Christians, but their great concern is to call people to the law of Moses, to circumcision, to the old covenant, the, the ministry of condemnation and death. And Paul is saying here, 
You cannot, you must not yoke yourselves to them. If you do, it will lead you back to that covenant of condemnation, which will judge you and condemn you and provoke sin in you. And ultimately, it will mean eternity in hell. Do not do that. Don't take that yoke upon you. They have a yoke. Those blind followers of Moses have a yoke that will crush them. If you join with them under the law, you'll be taking that yoke upon yourself and you'll be crushed right along with them. He goes on, what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Imagine that he's now calling the Jews the lawless ones because they've rejected Christ and his law and they're holding on to the law of Moses and the condemnation that comes with it righteousness is what we have because of Christ. Or what fellowship has light with darkness? We followers of Christ are in light. Those followers of Moses and the old covenant are in darkness, going back again to chapter three and four. Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Again, it's astounding. He's now equating the Jews who reject Christ as following the false god Belial and saying that we follow the Messiah and we have no harmony with those who follow Belial. Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Right, The unbeliever here is the Jew who's rejected Christ and the believer, of course, are those who believe in Christ. Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? The Jews, when they rejected Christ, practiced idolatry because they no longer had access to the Father because no one comes to the Father except through Christ. We do not worship the same God as the Jews. Don't let anybody convince you that we do. They don't. You cannot have the Father without also having the Son. Jesus said that over and over again. For we are the temple of the living God, Paul says here in verse 16. We are, we Christians, not Jews, certainly not Gentiles, we Christians are the temple of the living God. Just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they will show, shall be my people. And now Paul's applying this to the church. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord. Leave Judaism alone. Do not conform to Israel and circumcision and the law come out from them. Again, he's using Old Testament statements and commands given to Israel to come out from the pagans. And now Paul is applying this to the church saying, stay away from the old covenant folks. Do not touch what is unclean. Jews are unclean now if they reject Christ. And I will welcome you, says the father. And I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. That's the context. That's, the, that's, that's what's going on here in 2 Corinthians 6. Paul is warning these Corinthians not to engage with the Judaizers. It's very similar to what he did with the Philippians in chapter 3. He says, beware of the dogs, the false circumcision, describing Jews as the false circumcision, saying we Christians are the true circumcision. He says this in Romans chapter 2, the true Jew is not the one who's circumcised externally, but the one who has a circumcision of the heart. And on and on and on, this is a constant refrain in the New Testament. 
So be, do not be unequally yoked. 2 Corinthians 6.14 is not about dating or marrying a non-Christian. It's about staying away from attachment to the old covenant and to the Jewish religion. Now, having said that, is there an application for us? Is this a principle that we can apply to current circumstances? I think so. I think so. If, if Paul's going to use such language to say, don't bind yourself, don't yoke yourself together with the Jews because they will drag you back to this ministry of condemnation, it seems like a reasonable principle to say, don't bind yourself in a, in a contractual agreement. Don't, don't take on a yoke with someone who can lead you down a path, anybody who can lead you down a path that would bring the judgment of God. Getting involved with a, an unbeliever uh, romantically in a marriage, uh, that can lead to some very hard and bad things. Uh, a, a business partnership, I think we need to be careful about engaging in a, in a contractual agreement where you have a business partner who is an unbeliever and the decisions that he wants to make could lead to um, uh, sin, and 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 things that would dishonor the Lord. Uh, again, that's not the that's not the context of Second Corinthians six. But when, in terms of applying the principle, I think there's there are some conclusions worth pondering and some application to make there. But we need to be careful and not just sling out Second Corinthians six fourteen every time we see somebody uh, interested in in a, a girl or a boy who. Uh, who's not a Christian, and not just sling it out there without qualification, without explaining the context, uh, lest they learn this verse, but don't know its context. So dads out there, sorry. Uh, I feel the weight of this too. Um, again, I, I, I would step in and, and discourage my children from dating unbelievers because I think it's, it's dangerous and ultimately could be sinful. However, this verse is not just a quick piece of ammunition to shoot down that concern. All right, we come to the shepherds section of episode 62, and we're going to continue looking at Titus 2, in particular verse 5, where Paul is explaining uh, what older women are to teach younger women. And he uses a word that he also used uh, for men, for older men earlier. And he says, younger women are to be sensible or prudent or wise. Uh, it's a word that probably you, you can gain an understanding of pretty quickly, but it's kind of hard to define precisely. Uh, it has, at its root, it has mind as part of the original Greek word here. So it has something to do, about, something to do with uh, thinking well, using your mind well, and hence the uh, translation sensible or prudent. Uh, young women need to be taught this uh, to, to make good decisions, uh, to, to think, to use their minds, and to, uh, to not just go after every impulse. The world, of course, is telling women just the opposite. They are told to indulge every passion, 
especially women are told to do this. You know, years ago, men were told to do this. Uh, and, and women today are especially the ones that they're told to follow their heart, uh, to go get whatever they want, basically told to do all the things men were told to do in the past. So go after men, women, go after them. Or if you prefer women, go after women. Uh, that, of course, is allowed in our day and encouraged. Uh, but go after men, not just one man, but go after any man you want. And uh, sexual freedom and promiscuity and adventure is all uh, encouraged upon young women today. Uh, they are told to pursue careers, uh, find out what you want to do, be who you, be whoever you want to be, and and go after it. And if that doesn't work, go do something else and climb the corporate ladder like men do. Uh, simple things and practical things like credit card purchases. You know, build the life you want. Get loans. Get debt. Uh, go. You've got a credit card. Go buy whatever you want. Enjoy life. Uh, speak your mind. They're told. Uh, say what you want to say. Don't let anybody. Uh, keep you quiet, especially women. You know, I am woman, hear me roar, uh, has continued on to our day. Christian women, by and large, are told to do much the same, just avoiding the big sins. You know, don't commit fornication if you're single. Uh, don't commit adultery if you're married. Um, don't have an abortion. Maybe a few others, but primarily, you're still, you're a woman, you're being inundated with the, uh, the encouragement to go do everything you want to do, just avoid those big sins. Uh, a very practical example of this occurred with my daughter and I uh, a couple years ago. We started looking, uh, she was 16, 17 at the time, I guess, and uh, she was pondering what she was going to do uh, as high school graduation was on the horizon, and we went to a college fair. And she has an interest in children, and so uh, at least one of the options was the consideration of becoming a, a teacher and to get uh, her education, a teaching education and certification and all that. And so we went up to several of the different uh, college booths and sought information on those things. And uh, in this one particular school has a great reputation for training educators, uh, you know this uh, this woman who was uh, giving her spiel and uh, and had literature there and explaining how it works and the advantages of her particular institution. Uh, just went on and on about how great this is and and it was a fine presentation and it sounds like a a pretty good school actually comparatively it sounded like a great school. Uh, but we asked I asked because this is what dads do. Uh, what's the tuition? How much is this going to cost? And in this particular. Um, institution, I believe looking at the best case scenario, uh, and that, that includes, you know, the, the tuition that's listed is never what you pay. If you, if you're smart at all, you can talk every institution down, uh, from what is listed and there are scholarships and there are, you know, certain advantages that you can take it, take advantage of. But, uh, at the end of the day, I believe we figured out it would cost about $60,000, to, uh, to receive the, the teaching degree from this school. And that wasn't the highest by a long stretch, and there were a few that were um, lower than that. So uh, my daughter and I went over, sat down, got out a, a, a piece of paper and a pencil, and started figuring up and said, okay, suppose you were to take out student loans for this, 
which she already knew that uh, I was going to discourage because we don't think loans are a good option. But uh, let's just assume you you did that. Or let's just assume you saved up $60,000 to to get that degree. $60,000, and if it's a loan, then you pile on interest to that $60,000 base. And then let's figure out a teacher's salary, which is, you know, what, starting off usually mid-20s or so, $20,000, $25,000, maybe thirty, uh, yeah, somewhere in there. We, we found a variety. And then you take living expenditures, uh, car, rent, uh, food, insurance, all those things you need to live on. And let's just calculate how long it would take to pay off a $60,000 loan plus interest, or just to say you, how long would it take you to work and save up $60,000 and then invest that in the school program? How long would it take you to, uh, to earn that money back? How long would it take you in the first place to save up $60,000? It's a long time. It would not be prudent for her, it would not be sensible for her to take on that kind of loan to become a teacher, especially because her greatest desire is to become a wife and mother. So we talked through that. Um, What a burden that would bring to a husband were she to enter marriage with $60,000 in debt and a desire to to have children and raise her children so she's not earning any income or at best uh, earning some on the side, which would still then take years to pay off. And she wouldn't be most likely working in her field of study. She would have to get a job that she could do from home with the kids in order to pay off her student debt. So at the end of the day, if she were to go that route, she would have huge debt and she would not be teaching in a school, so she wouldn't be using the uh, education, and she'd be bringing a burden to her her husband. That's not sensible. In fact, I would argue in most cases, taking on college debt student loans is not sensible for a young woman. Maybe not for a young man either, but that's that's another topic down the road. That's just the kind of thing that the world would say, go for it. If you want to be a teacher, go. If you don't have the money to go to school, tough. I mean, that's easy. Just just borrow it. That's what we do. We borrow money. You want a new car? Borrow the money. You want new clothes? Borrow money. That's what the world says. And that's so often what the church says. So often what Christians say, yeah, go, do it, do. You only live once. You only go around once. It's not sensible. And we could multiply examples of this. We are to be um, prudent. Young women are to be prudent in their thinking. Uh, the Bible here says, exercise self-restraint. Uh, they are, women are not to be given to emotional decision, decisions. They're to use wisdom. And again, we could, we could multiply examples of this, how they spend their time. Young women are exhorted here to spend their time uh, with wisdom, with prudence, being sensible, how they spend their money, how they spend their words. They should show self-control and self-restraint. Uh, the friends they choose should also uh, be chosen by wisdom. Uh, social media, what they watch, what they pursue, and of course, Netflix, movies, and so on. And notice uh, from last week, 
older women are the ones who are to train the younger women in these things. Now, that doesn't mean nobody else could do it. You know, I'm the father of my daughters, and so I have a responsibility to, uh, to train them. Elders and teachers have a responsibility to train. Uh, but here, uh, Paul is telling Titus that the older women are to train them. And if you remember from last week, uh, this, this word is translated encourage, have the older women encourage younger women in this, but that, that doesn't get at it. Encouragement in our day is almost a synonym for flattery. What Paul is saying here is older women should train the younger women. That means we need to have older women who will pursue younger women with the express purpose of training them to be sensible in all areas of life. My wife does this. My wife is now an older woman. Uh, Compared to some, she's younger, but compared to others, she's older. And in terms of Christian maturity and life maturity, she is an older woman. And she spends a great deal of time with younger women, teaching them to do all these things that uh, Paul says, to love their husbands, love their children, and to be sensible how they use their time, their money, uh, their words, their, their emotions and passions and such. Uh, and I know one young woman that she's poured a lot of time into who is doing fantastic at this. Uh, she's got a good job. She does not have a college degree, but she's making good money and she is saving up for a car. She's got, I think, $12,000 cash saved up to replace her car because it's going to need to be replaced here before long. She's got another, I forget, $15,000 saved for a house someday. Uh, she would love to get married. If she doesn't get married anytime soon, she's going to uh, buy a house. And so she's working on a down payment for that. And she pays for all of her expenses. She's very frugal in those things. I mean, imagine a young man who sees her and thinks, wow, I mean, not only is she, she attractive, but she pays cash. She saves up to pay cash for a car. She's got money to bring to the marriage as opposed to huge debt to bring to the marriage. She's proving to have self-control with her words, with her actions, uh, and all these things. It's, it's wonderful. It's godly. It represents Christ well. Uh, my wife has had some influence in this young woman's life because she's training her to do those things. And other women in our church will do this some as well, but it certainly seems like it is something that's de-emphasized in churches today. So consider your church. Do you know older women who are actively training younger women to be sensible? There's a lot of women's ministry, a lot of things that go on, formal programs, informal gatherings, but can you, can you point out an example of an older woman who you know is specifically training younger woman, a younger woman to be sensible with her time, her money, her thoughts, her words, her passions, all those things. We as elders need to make sure that we are equipping older women to train younger women in these things. Imagine how much better your church would be, how much healthier, sounder, more Christ-honoring your church would be if older women were training younger women to be sensible. All 
All right, as we come to the Kings section of episode 62, I want to talk to you about the five ways that we learn things. And actually, I'm going, only going to focus in on one of them because I think it's the most neglected and arguably the most important. Um, and maybe we'll come back and look at the other four in future episodes. But the five ways that we learn, think about it. This is not too hard. You would know this. We learn through observation. As you see things in the world, you learn things. This is especially true of young children. They see things and they learn all the time, but we always uh, learn things as we observe them. Number two, we learn by reading. That's pretty obvious. Number three, we learn by listening to lectures. When there is someone who is um, orating on a topic, we learn that way. And of course, we have so many vehicles for that these days, YouTube and so on. Uh, Number four, we learn through discussion, dialogue, as we go back and forth with someone. But the fifth way of learning, and again, I would argue it's the most important and the most neglected, and it's this. Are you ready? Meditation. It is so significant for learning, and yet it's my observation and my learning through dialogue with other men, it is the most neglected. How much time do you spend meditating? Obviously, I'm not talking about, you know, some kind of an experience, a Buddhist, you know, home and just clearing your mind. I mean, meditation in the sense of sitting still and pondering, reflecting, thinking deeply about something that you have received through one of the other four methods. So you observe something, then do you meditate on it and think through it carefully and cement it as part of your knowledge. When you read something, do you sit and ponder, wrestle with what's being proposed here, determine whether the conclusions derive from the premises, think about counter arguments, think about other things that you've read or learned that uh, maybe reinforce this or fight against it, And when you come to something you think is true, do you take the time to really ponder and reflect and cement it in your knowledge? I think, especially in our day of of Twitter and, uh, and, and Facebook and other social media, we train ourselves to go so quickly over words and that transfer to things that we read, uh, you know, as Christians, we were people of the word. We should care about words. And there's a whole world to be learned and known. And that's part of my ongoing uh, push for men is to, uh, to be very optimistic about uh, expanding the, Christ of, the, the kingdom of Christ and the peace of Christ and rule us to do this earth. And that means we have to learn, learn, learn. Of course, we have to do, 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 but we also need to be constantly learning. And that can very easily... Be, um, be interpreted as read, 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 which again, reading is a huge part of learning. But if you just put your eyes over words, if you just get through material, you're not learning anything. Think of what you have read today, maybe in the scripture, maybe online, maybe in a book. Did you really learn anything? Have you meditated, pondered, 
deeply on anything. When you listen to a lecture or a sermon, how easy is it to sit and listen to a sermon and listen for the funny stories, find it interesting, and then walk out of the service and learn nothing because you don't have follow-up time for meditation. Now, good fathers, of course, are going to have discussions with their wives and children on the way home or over lunch uh, on Sunday afternoon. But even that can be an exercise without actually learning. We can feel good about ourselves, say, I'm doing my fatherly duty, and learn nothing. And lead by example to others in our household that the thing is to go through these motions and to feel good about it without learning or having a dialogue with somebody and really discussing and debating and getting, getting to truth. You know, it's so easy to just want to win the debate, to get good points in. And so often we listen to others as they're speaking, preparing our response instead of listening and engaging to actually go somewhere in the debate and the dialogue, and then later getting alone and meditating and pondering the truth, or at least the truth claims, to determine if they're accurate, and then cementing them into your memory, into your knowledge. It takes time. It takes quietness. And it's the way things stick. I can't encourage you enough, whatever you're pursuing in terms of knowledge, you must reflect, you must meditate. Think about the first two portions of this podcast, right? So I've spoken of a verse that we often rip out of context, 2 Corinthians 6.14, do not be unequally yoked. You wouldn't take that verse out of context if you took the time as you're studying 2 Corinthians or reading 2 Corinthians to do what I did and look back over the broader context, I walked you through, starting in chapter 3, the lead up to chapter 6, verse 14. And I have sat and pondered and looked broadly at the flow of the argument through 2 Corinthians to get to the place where I know the role that 2 Corinthians 6.14 plays in Paul's argument. That takes a lot of time to sit and ponder, reflect, ask questions, to make sure that I can prove the role that 6.14 plays in 2 Corinthians, as opposed to just grabbing a verse, throwing it on a coffee cup, and telling my kids, don't date unbelievers. It takes a lot of work. Have you meditated on those verses? Think about all the, all the other uh, verses in this series that we've done, ruining your favorite Bible verses. People wouldn't do that. They wouldn't take them out of context if they were diligent and slow at meditation and reflection. How about uh, the uh, Titus 2 for women that I just uh, spoke on in the shepherds section? Young women are to be sensible. How many times have you read that? I'm sure you've read Titus. You've read it in your Bible reading plan and and others. Maybe you've heard preachers preach on it and that kind of thing. But have you sat and pondered why younger women are to be sensible? Why does Paul want older women to train the younger women to be sensible? 
What are the temptations to younger women? Why does he draw that out for younger women? Taking time to ponder and reflect in our day and say, hmm, how are young women discouraged from being sensible? How does the church encourage women to be undiscerning in their thinking? And why is Paul so concerned about this? What are the implications for young women if they are discerning versus undiscerning? You can spend a long time, you could easily spend a half an hour just meditating on what it means to be sensible, what it means for a young woman to be sensible, and why it's important and how she should go about it. Easy spending 30 minutes on that. How much more profit would it, would it have for you to ponder that and meditate that, on that than to just put your eyes over the rest of Titus, for instance? There's a place to just read the Bible for sure. But you know what? Reading the Bible is easy and it's common. Knowing it is hard and rare. Sadly, even among pastors, knowing the Bible is rare. Pastors know systems of theology. They know the words of commentaries. They know the teaching that they've read in popular books and videos, YouTubes, but there are a lot of pastors that do not know the Bible because it's hard work. And the real difficulty is not in reading it and reading the writings of others on it. The real difficulty is to sit and to think and to meditate, to reflect to ponder. So think about your Bible reading from today. Did you read it and then move on? Or have you meditated on it? How about this podcast? Will you listen to this and then move on? Or will you ponder the things that I've taught here, each section, and really reflect and meditate? The difference between knowing And not knowing is all about meditation. Make it a practice and a habit to spend extended time in reflection. All right, friends, well, that wraps up episode 62 of the podcast. I appreciate you coming along with me. I mentioned earlier that we have wrapped up the uh, Ruining Your Favorite Bible Verses series, and I haven't decided for sure what I'm going to do next. So if you have an idea, a suggestion, hit me up on Twitter. My uh, handle there is at Doug Gooden, D-O-U-G-G-O-O-D-I-N. Or you can uh, send me a message through the Cross to Crown Facebook page if you'd like that page. That would be helpful. Uh, Or you could do it through my personal Facebook page, although I'm not as diligent there as some are. So let me know if you have uh, an idea for a a series or something that would be good for the theology section of the podcast. Uh, Earlier in the podcast, I mentioned uh, my son's new release, his musical song, You Today. Uh, I'll put a a link in the show notes, but I would love it if you'd give that a listen and let us know your thoughts and share it around with anybody else that that you think might enjoy uh, this nice uh, nice piece of music from a 15-year-old boy. We've got more coming, so stay tuned there. And also this podcast, share it around with anybody who you think would uh, derive value from it. 
All right, that's going to wrap it up. Until next week, I urge you, as always, to live intentionally Christ-obsessed in all things. I'm